we don't want to necessarily be the fastest. Speed does matter, but we want to go the furthest. That's the mindset that we have. And you don't have to grow 300% a year to build a big business. We think a lot more about building things that will scale and that'll have stability and that over time can really become something special. Hey, this is the Built in Seattle podcast. I'm Adam Schoenfeld. On this show, I chat with Seattle's best entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about how they think and how they operate. On this episode, I sat down with my friend Joe Davies, CEO and co-founder at Bonsai. They make event marketing software for businesses. You can find them at getbonsai.com. And Joe's done something that's pretty rare. He built a fast-growing, multi-million dollar business without raising venture capital. We talked about that decision, how he thinks about execution, and some of the lessons he learned from working at Avalara. He even shared a bit of his entrepreneurial roots, the backbreaking work of feeding chickens in Harnett County, North Carolina. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm sitting here with the one, the only, the notorious Joe Davy. <laughs> Morning, Adam. Uh, Joe's the CEO and founder at Bonsai. Joe, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, as you know. We've had many good breakfasts together. The, feel, the feeling's mutual, obviously. I've learned a lot from you. One thing I admire is your patience. You have kind of an incredible long-term view. Where does that come from? Some of it's probably just in my nature as a kid. I was always a little bit more willing to wait for some things. On the other, the other side of that, the, the countervailing force is probably just that I'm a persistent person and that I've never been successful at doing anything the first time around. So I kind of had to become patient and develop that as an instinct almost because uh, without that, if I measured myself on how I succeeded the first time around on anything, mm -hmm. I probably never would have accomplished anything. A hmm. little bit of a protective mechanism then. Maybe so, yeah. I've just, I guess I've just learned to say like, for me, you know, maybe this isn't the case with everyone, you know, but for me, it's it can sometimes take me a little while to get my plan together, get my thoughts together, figure out a system that's going to work, execute on it. And so I think around here, we don't want to necessarily be the fastest. I mean, speed does matter, but we want to go the furthest. That's the mindset that we have. And you don't have to grow 300% a year to build a big business. You know, Beanie Babies grew at a very fast growth rate for a couple of <laughs> right. years there. So it's not always about that. So we think a lot more about building things that will scale and that'll have stability and that over time can really become something special. Yeah. And you chose to bootstrap this company. Yeah, that's true. Right. How does that play into your philosophy on patience and that long-term view and, and building to last versus building for speed? Well, going back to never succeeding at anything the first time around, we only chose to bootstrap the company because we went out to try to raise money and nobody would give it to us. I think we pitched 82 investors and two of them said yes, and they put in $100,000. So we were expecting to go raise something like $3 million at that time. And obviously we didn't. Mm -hmm. And so part of that was just a way of saying like, we got to get 
we got to get moving with building the company. You know, we can't wait around to find somebody who wants to back this. Mm -hmm. And part of it, I think, also was just we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. After you hear 82 people say no to you or whatever, 80, 80 of the 82, you're just like, ah, screw it. Let's just go prove that we can do it. And, and, and you have. And, and we right? have. Yeah, so and we have. What is it? It's been about four years now. Since we incorporated, yeah, it's been about yeah. four years. You've established yourself. You've proven some success. What's the employee count now of the business? Well, we have 15 or I guess 16 people in the U.S. And we have 30 or so people abroad. So yeah, yeah, it's almost 50 employees, real revenue base. I saw your customer logos out there. Super impressive list of customers. Yeah, we've got about 160 customers uh, mostly in the B2B tech mm -hmm. space, and they run the gambit, at, but but they're terrific customers, and they've been very patient with us as, you know, because we've never had all the resources to do everything that they've mm -hmm. wanted us to do and to do it perfectly. So they've been very patient with us, and they're they're great customers to work with. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare to bootstrap, raise no money, and do what you've done. And I think that's a testament to your work. You, you've, I've read some of your stuff and, and obviously talked to you many times. And there's a common thread about execution being much more important than ideas. Yeah. Right? And I think, you know, to be able to bootstrap that effectively, a business to the size that you're at obviously required a lot of execution. What does that mean to you? Well, first and foremost, I think it means you've got to have a great product. I mean... A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that when you come up with a great product idea, that that's the end of the hard work. Mm -hmm. And that's actually just the beginning of the hard work because when you have an idea, A, it may, may not be as good of an idea as it looks like. We've certainly had our fair share of those around here. Yep. But B, what, what was the difference between Google and Yahoo, right? Or Yahoo and everyone else? And it mostly comes down to the success of their product at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, Google didn't win by having a better sales team necessarily, although maybe they did. But I think in many cases, you could argue that Yahoo has a more adept sales team. They probably had to. They had to wring more revenue out of a lesser product. So it's definitely possible to build a really big business with a mediocre product but is it really long-term sustainable and, and how big can you scale it? I think that's, I think that's the challenge. So a, a, a business kind of operates in a context and the product creates the envelope that you can operate in in some ways. Um, how many people will buy it? How much do they need it? Mm -hmm. What structural advantages can you build in versus your market? Things like that. And so if you do a great job of executing on those things and strengthening those things, you'll end up with at least a pretty good business. And if you execute really well on everything else, you'll end up with a great business. Right. So the in your mind, the product is kind of the core and the sales and marketing and support and all those other things are kind of amplifiers, but you have to execute Absolutely. the product. Yeah. I mean, you want to do both well, ideally. Right. Um, but if you had to pick one, I would say start with the product. If you do a great job of sales and marketing execution and your product is not desired, then you'll only get so large. That's it's the kind of metaphorical selling ice to Eskimos. You know, we joke about that around here. Who the hell would want to sell ice to Eskimos? Like, yeah, Horrible maybe you job. can maybe you can do it, but why? <laughs> why would you? You know? Right. So I'd rather sell heating equipment to Eskimos or something, you know. Great job. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's gonna be one's gonna be much easier to do. So part of it is just if you get the product right, 
you kind of make everything else a lot easier on yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're swimming with the current. And if you get the product wrong, you'll always be swimming against the current to a certain extent. Right. And that's really a lesson that I learned at Avalara. And there, it was really a sales-driven product culture in the sense that the lesson that Scott always had for us was if the customer wants something, let's figure out how to sell it to them first and then figure out how to build it second. And some people might look at that and say, well, that's not being product-driven at all, but that's not strictly true. Listening to the customer is the foundation of building a great product. And so what Scott was always trying to get us to do was to listen to the customer and figure out what we were missing that we could give to the customer, that we could provide to the customer benefit that we could provide to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's obviously been very effective. So one of the things about you, Joe, is that you're just 30. Hmm. And this is not an insult, but I've always (laughs) thought of you as being kind of wise beyond your years. And by founder CEO standards, you're certainly on the on the young side. And that would have meant you started Bonsai when you were in your kind of mid 20s. Yeah, I think I was 26. 26. I believe. I believe. Okay. So at 26, you're there at Avalara, you're working for some great people. How did you know you were ready to go out and and do it to start your own company again? I had a I had a friend. I, I have a friend who asked me this question the other day. And he's further along in his career and has had an extremely successful career. This guy has done really well, but he's never started his own business. And he and I were having breakfast and he said, I've always wondered whether I should have done that. Maybe I should have gone and started my own business. And I said, I don't think you should have. And I don't mean that in any negative way. I just think it's the kind of thing that you should only do if you're really compelled to do it. I mean, because it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And and it, it looks glamorous, but really it's not. If you're doing it in a glamorous way, you're probably doing it wrong. So it's not something that I would ever encourage anyone to do. I, I think there's a lot of programs out there trying to foster entrepreneurship and things like that. And I just don't really think it's necessary. I think the people who are entrepreneurs are going to know that instinctively about themselves. And they're going to be the ones who, who go and do it. And they always have been. For thousands of years, you've had people who go out and make it on their own. And who knows why people are compelled to do that. There's something, right? There is some compulsion. Yeah, there is. In terms of, you know, so that, so I'd say that's, that's why. I mean, I just knew that I had to. That was my natural state. Mm. And I loved working at Avalara, but also it wasn't my natural state to be an executive uh, at a larger company for whatever reason. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people would look at that and be like, you're crazy, right? You're, oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Super wouldn't successful the, the business. First time. Yeah. You have a, a great career there. You're there for in a period of remarkable growth, which, yeah. you know, if you're doing well, typically sets you up for your own personal growth and financial success and acceleration of your career. And at that point, you said, I'm going to go over here and and start another company. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, a lot of it was just, I, I felt like I was on the sidelines in a way. Hmm. And I wanted to get back in the game. And I didn't want to sit on the sidelines too long. I felt like if I stayed out of the game for five years, and I got married, and I had kids, and all these other things, and I wasn't in the game when I did those things, that maybe I wouldn't have the courage to go do it. 
Mm -hmm. Why is it important for you to be in the game? Who knows? It's just, <laughs> just a, it's just a compulsion. Okay. It's just a compulsion. You think it's a hardwired kind of a thing? I, I have been involved in different kinds of businesses since I was a, a kid. When I was when I was little, we were always trying to find extra ways to make a buck, and I would go like feed chickens with a friend of mine, or you know, I built websites for people on the side for a couple hundred bucks, or I'd go and all all these little businesses around town. I'd go help them set up their networks and do their security and all this stuff. And I mean, I grew up in a real small town, so I knew I got to know a lot of the business owners mm -hmm. in the town by doing that. And I just always knew that it was uh, something that I wanted to do. So feeding chickens was was your first venture? Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a, a new way. factor. Yeah, me. Yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. My, one of my best friends growing up, his, his granddad had a big chicken ranch out in Harnett County. And uh, in the summers, we would go out there and feed the chickens and he would pay us 20 bucks or something to... And this was like backbreaking work because right. you're hauling around these Oof. huge five-gallon buckets of water and these five-gallon buckets of chicken feed, and you can you know feed so many chickens, and then you got to go back and refill and go way back out into the fields. Anyways, it, that's twenty dollars for a day, hard day of real hard work. Real hard work, exactly. I mean, right. it really makes you appreciate uh, <laughs> working in an totally. office, right? Yes, <laughs> uh, compared to that, sitting in an air-conditioned office and typing on a computer cannot be called hard work. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. How old were you when you were doing that? I don't know, maybe maybe 12, 13. 12, 13. Okay. Something like so that. So 20 bucks was a was a real thing at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we were really into video games, so we'd, <laughs> we'd pool our money and go buy some video game and go play it all weekend. And Love it. That's how we kept ourselves entertained. Yeah. So how do you, what advice do you give to other young founders, people in their 20s who kind of have the itch or think they're wired that way? Because you, you did this at a younger age. Um actually super young and you've had you had some ups and downs and and then you went to Avalara and then you kind of came and have bonsai on a great track what do you what do you tell people who are maybe five years behind you in the playbook i think it's just like having a baby i mean i don't i've never had a baby but <laughs> i from what i understand i think if you wait till everything's perfect it'll never get started right. you know what i mean so if you wait till you're ready i think you're gonna have a very hard time as a founder finding a perfect idea and a perfect partner and everything else. And there's all of this lore around how the partnership is so crucial. And if you pick the wrong co-founders, your business is going to die and how you got to have the best idea. And if you pick the wrong idea, your business is going to die. And I think the best founders are resilient. Even great businesses end up getting hit with very unexpected setbacks. And I mean, Intel is a great example of this. Intel had a massive business doing memory chips. And then the huge influx of Japanese RAM basically almost put them out of business. Right. And they had to pivot that, that multi-million dollar, but they were publicly traded, publicly traded company. They had to pivot that entire business into processors. And it was obviously has ended up being genius in retrospect. Right. But I think true entrepreneurs have that mindset. You kind of constantly thinking about how to improve things or constantly worried about what might go wrong. And but I think you can't hesitate. If you hesitate, 
then that's if you hesitate you die right so right that's that's very interesting what's been surprisingly hard about the journey at bonsai right because after you had this experience at avalara you've started other companies right probably thought you knew a little bit yeah what's what's really surprised a very very little bit yeah (laughs) i mean how hard it is to start a company with no money Mm. you know but i would say the trade-off to that, like, so we never took a lot of VC, never took any VC. We started the company with maybe $100,000. And so today we support a payroll that's sometime, some multiple larger than that right. every month. So all of that has to come from cash flow. And so we have to defend that cash flow very fiercely, right? Right. If that cash flow gets impacted, then it's going to have serious, you know, implications for the business. So part of, part of what surprised me was just how hard that is, having to think through that cash flow problem in a way that you just simply don't if you have a pile of venture capital sitting in your bank account. And, and you, you went through this because you mm-hmm. also had a, a bootstrapped startup. It really forces you to think differently about your business in a way that I think is surprisingly constructive. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't work for every business. Would that be the right thing for Facebook to have done? Yeah, probably not. But I think if you're in enterprise software, it's extremely valuable to because it really forces you to test your assumptions. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that that I found was really surprising was how well I sleep at night. I mean, I sleep like a baby every night. I don't have, I don't wake up in the middle of the night. I don't sit there with insomnia, worried about, are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? It's a, because we have built it kind of the whole way along from something very small now into something that's still, still small, but somewhat larger. The same anxiety that's, you know, there when you're, when you have, VC and you have a burn rate right. and you see the clock ticking down every month and that this is our drop dead date, essentially. I mean, that's a really bad feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that gets inside you in some way. It gets inside your head, but it also just gets inside your body. Hmm. It gives you gives you stress at a really deep level, I think. At least it did always did for me. Maybe some people don't mind it, but for me, it always it always gave me quite a bit of stress. That's true. You have the monthly, you have every month, you have validation that you have a real business. Yeah, exactly. The cash comes in, you make the payroll. Yeah. You go to sleep at night, right? And you have reasonable expectation that you'll do it next month, right? Or if things go wrong, you kind of know how to adjust and how to change course. Yeah. Right. Very different than intentionally being out of your skis in a burn model. Right. from From at least a cash point of view. Yeah. From, yeah. I mean, from a structural standpoint, you can build a business that is designed to do that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. There's certainly reasons that mm-hmm. you might want to, but it's just not the model that we've chosen to take to get started. And I think, honestly, many B2B or enterprise software companies would probably do a lot better if they would start with less capital mm-hmm. because it would really make them focused on what can I do for customers It's going to get them to pay me today and that's the ultimate test of whether you're providing value. So when we look at our metrics now, when we occasionally talk to you know VCs and 
we're talking about our metrics, they're all very impressed by our sales cycle being as short as it is or by our ACV being as high as it is or by our retention rates. And it just comes down to the fact that we had to do that to survive. And I think, honestly, it just makes the business stronger. Right. It's a, it's a real forcing function when you choose yeah, that and, model. And really, what are, we all, what are you doing this for anyways, right? I mean, if you're starting a business, what are you starting a business to do, really? I mean, the purpose of a business is to organize people and resources to make money, right? To right. provide value to customers and to make money for doing it. So are you really about that or not? For a lot of companies who raise a bunch of VC, you might be organizing people and resources, but you're not really providing value to anybody. It's easy to spend a million dollars. It's hard to make a million dollars. True. And the million dollars, first million dollars is the hardest to make. I think it's the ultimate test of whether you're creating value, which is yeah. the ultimate purpose of the business. It's, it's a great forcing function, having done it both ways. And when, I know we've both done it both ways with venture capital in the bank and with zero dollars in the bank. Yeah. I can say it's a great forcing function. You have an interesting view on it, which is you don't seem to have religion about bootstrapping. No. It's not dogma. It's, no. it's a function of the situation and what's right for the business and the people. I know there's some out there that have religion about this, and it's, there's only one way or the, uh, the other. But you've seemed to have a, a balanced point of view on this that you can follow any of these paths depending on the specifics of your situation. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not a dogmatic kind of person because I think it's crazy in a way. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, anti-dogmatic in a way. Yeah. You know, obviously, you can build great businesses by raising a lot of venture capital and go and do that. Or you can build a great business without doing that. And there's many, I mean, there's countless examples of companies that bootstrapped and now are massive businesses. Like Walmart is a great example of that. I mean, all of their business grew out of just reinvesting right. the capital, you know, that they produced from the stores that they ran. Right. So that's that's one example. I mean, and there's lots of tech examples sure. too. We see right? MailChimp, we talk about Basecamp, right? Yeah. Gotten quite large. There's many others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's many. There's many. And there's many companies that didn't raise a lot of venture capital. Then there's a lot of companies that have raised a lot of venture capital. And I think in the past 10 years, that has become an extremely successful model in a way. I mean, far beyond the realm of maybe what anyone thought was possible, the amount of private capital that has entered the market from Vision Fund and other places and Everybody's trying to compete with that now. And so anyways, you know, if I know anything about business, it's that if everybody's doing something, it must be great. It must be the right thing to do. Right. So, yeah, I learned that lesson in high school too. You know, my dad always used to say, if, if everyone was jumping off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? And no, that is so. the approach many entrepreneurs take with, with raising capital at the onset 100%. of business. They go, well, everybody's doing that. Everybody's 100%. raising a pre-seed and a seed or an doing an accelerator or this and that. And therefore, I should. 100%. And when you meet people like that, what framework do you give them? Or how do you tell them to think about that question, right? Because you don't have dogma about it. You don't say the only way is to bootstrap. And you yeah. don't say the only way is to raise $100 million. Yeah. How do you advise people to think about that question? I just... Well, first of all, I really don't dispense a lot of advice. <laughs> you know, if people ask if people ask me my opinion, I'll give it to them. But otherwise, I'm perfectly content to just stay on the sidelines of someone else's business. Sure. I've invested in in many companies, and in those cases, sometimes I thought it was a great idea for them to be raising money. 
Sometimes I thought it was just a great opportunity for me to invest in a company that maybe didn't really necessarily need the money. <laughs> right. But ultimately, I think it comes down to what I said earlier. It's just think about what kind of value are you trying to create and why. If you have a good plan and you're, and you're really clear about who you're creating value for and why that matters long term, then I think you'll end up with a very clear output of that that says, do we need to raise money or not? If you're so it starts with that fundamental question, right? Yeah. And then you can get there. Yeah, yeah. It's not, this isn't something you need to overcomplicate. No, I mean, what are you trying to do and why? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just never stop to ask themselves that question. They they just kind of see raising money as a necessary first step to starting a business. Yeah, and they open up GeekWire and there's five companies raised money this week and they say, that's every day. how I got to do it. Every day, every right. day there's more of them. TechCrunch, there's more of them. I mean, if you want to get into TechCrunch and be on the first page of TechCrunch, raising money is probably the best way to do it. But you're probably not going to end up on TechCrunch that much for not raising money. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody nobody writes articles about all the times you didn't raise money. I would say we've tried to be very thoughtful about it, and we're not dogmatic about it, but, but we're thoughtful, and I think we have a good understanding of why do we need money or not. And uh, part of that probably is because... When we started off, we had so much trouble raising it that it really forced us to question our assumptions about needing it. We said, geez, do we really need this to get started? And when we looked at it and we did the did the math, we just didn't. Hmm. And so we just started. So you uh, started with the everybody's doing it, so we should do it. And then absolutely. you pivoted to the, okay, we actually don't need this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we started off, we just assumed that, that we should raise money. And frankly, I think in some ways it makes your life a little easier. I mean, you don't sweat, are you going to make your mortgage payment this month? But you do start to sweat, am I going to make my mortgage payment next year? So in some ways it makes your life a little harder too. So it's just a a balance. And I think it's important for people to know what they're in for, know what they're getting themselves into. Most important thing in business is just not to lie to yourself, basically. And that starts with really thinking about what you're doing and why. And I think a lot of people kind of skip some of those steps sometimes and you know sometimes it works out yeah but you've helped me with this question because in my last company we spent a lot of time together as i was building sift rock and we mm. chose to bootstrap before that i raised a lot of venture capital so i love hearing your point of view on that question and i think it's a good question for other entrepreneurs other founders other teams to be thinking about as they build companies here or wherever because sure. there are many many ways to go about it so tell us a little bit about your time at Avalara. Like, how'd that come about and, and what was your role in the big story there? Yeah, well, I had been out to Seattle several times and I was living in North Carolina at the time. And I met the president of Avalara when he came to North Carolina. And we ended up really getting along well. And he had asked me to come out to meet some of the Avalara people and do some advisory work with them for a new product they were building. And I came out and I just really fell in love with Seattle and with Bainbridge Island where Avalara was headquartered at the time. And so when I decided to leave the Raleigh-Durham area, I knew I wanted to come to Seattle. And so I called Kevin, who's the president of Avalara, and I said, hey, are you guys, do you know anybody that's looking for a CEO? Because I want to move to Seattle and want to get connected to companies. And he said, well, no, I don't know of anybody off the top of my head, but why don't you come 
work for us. And so we talked for a couple of months about what that might look like. And I ended up starting off running the enterprise division of Avalara, which was called Cert Capture. It was a company that they had acquired in Raleigh and had some people around the world. And so I ended up being there for maybe a year and a half and then uh, eventually moved to Seattle. Oh, nice. So you got to work from Raleigh before you came out. I had to work from yeah. Raleigh. Oh, I had to. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was part to. of the bargain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. Kevin said, look, we will pay for you to move to Seattle, but first we got to get things working with gotcha. this business. So. Gotcha. And what were the bookends? Avalara, like incredible story, IPO, super successful company, yeah. started in Bainbridge of all places. But yeah. when you started, what was the scale of the company and employees to when you left? I want to say we were maybe, maybe, maybe close to 400 employees when I started, okay. maybe, maybe a little smaller than that. And low double digit millions in revenue, roughly. Yeah. I mean, when I left, we were 150 million in revenue, something like that, and probably probably 1,200 employees, something like that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. What a story. So you actually got to see a, a very successful business kind of in the scale-up stage. Up until that point in my career, I had spent a lot of time um, in the very early stage mostly because I had worked with a lot of companies that had never made it too far beyond the very <laughs> early stage. Either they had been sold or had just failed to failed to execute or whatever. And so, yeah, going to Avalara was like a great crash course for me because part of my job there was we were buying up all these companies. And so part of my job was looking at companies as we were buying them and figuring out how to integrate them and make them make them part of the Avalara culture, and then also keep them growing at a certain pace, right? And we definitely had a benchmark within the company. And we said, look, you're, if you're above the line, you're helping us. If you're below the line, you're hurting us. So you always had pressure to be above the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think your time there really accelerated what you're able to do now, founding Bonsai, being CEO again? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah, I think I think I learned a lot of valuable lessons there, and I think also there was a certain kind of dose of humility that comes from working with so many great people. Yeah. When I was young, I got a chance to go to a boarding school where it had kids from all over the state of North Carolina, and I was this yokel from Harnett County, which. Uh, is in the middle of nowhere, and I was there with all the smartest kids from all these really great schools in Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Charlotte and everywhere else. And that was another very humbling experience, right? You get to sit alongside and kind of get to know all of these extremely talented people who just blew me away all the time. Right. So yeah, and Avalara was like that in many ways. You get to really understand people's strengths and what they do well and what they don't do well. Yeah. And if you had started your own company, you'd have to kind of build that team incrementally and you'd always be at the top. So there's just a little deference that people give you when you're the oh, CEO. When, right? you're, when you're at the top, people <laughs> lie to you like crazy. Oh, yeah. You had you never have any idea what's going on when you're at the yeah. top. I mean, no, because nobody wants to tell you. It's not because people are malicious. They just don't want to tell right. you. Oh, nobody sure. wants to give you bad news. And when they do give you bad news, maybe they don't tell you exactly why it's happening or you're always getting their story about the bad news. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was great in a way, like being inside of that and being able to see how it worked. Okay, we do all, we do the, this, we have this process, doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't seem like it 
should be this way. Why do we do it that way? Like, oh, okay, got it. I understand. So you get to see that in a way, running a business like a golf swing, where there's many things that seem counterintuitive, if you're always doing the thing that seems like second nature to you, that may not be the right thing to do. Right. Right. Um, in many cases, you have to make trade-offs. Yeah. And some of those trade-offs, I think Ben Horowitz had a great had a great blog post about this, where he said, every now and then in a business, you'll make a you know decision and people will criticize you. Some people will say that the change is bad and it should have stayed the same. And other people will be excited about it. And the problem is that they're both right because there are pros and cons to everything that you're going to do. So everyone's going to have an argument for why you did something right or wrong or whatever. So part of this at the end of the day is just like weighing how are you going to get where you want to go. Yeah. And you got to see decisions that got made and look back on why they got made. And maybe those weren't the decisions you would have made, right? Knowing what you knew. Well, which some is a fascinating yeah, exercise. Yeah. yeah. A way to learn right. how other people thought through it or how it came to be. And some decisions I was totally in support of and ended up being terrible decisions. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it goes both ways. Right. We made uh, multiple $10 million plus errors. Sure. And, but that's just, that's part of it, right? You kind of have to have a certain tolerance for that. You're never going to get it right every time. And even operating under the best information that you have, you're going to get it wrong mm -hmm. periodically. And so part of part of going back to being patient, part of this is just having the will to evaluate your decisions continuously. Understand, do we make the right decision? Do we make the wrong decision? How do we know? Uh, how do we know that we're on track? Yeah. And, and in some ways, that's nice to be able to do when you aren't the ultimate decision maker. Yeah. Right? I, I think I kind of made this mistake early in my career. I was like, I want to go start companies. Hmm. And I met a bunch of people and they said, why don't you go work for a CEO that's starting a company or growing a company and you'll learn a bunch. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll just go out and start a company. And my first company was a total failure. And then I sometimes wish I had done that. And it sounds like this experience actually gave you a ton of perspective that you were able to then like apply forward. And do you think in the long term you're you're better off from taking sort of time out of the the big chair to go learn from somebody else? A thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. My boss at Avalara was a guy named Kevin Regelsberger, who was terrific, universally respected within the company. And he was a very tough guy, still is a very tough guy. He's not at Avalara anymore, but we're still uh, close friends. But Kevin was a, a very tough guy to work for. He had very high expectations and he would let you know immediately if you weren't meeting them. And I learned a hell of a lot from Kevin. That was probably the best experience I could have had at that point in my career was working for somebody like that who had been there, done that, had seen it done several times. Before Avalara, he had, uh, he had led another company called Capital Stream here in Seattle. And then he had founded a, a company that's called Epicor today that's one mm -hmm. of the largest ERP companies. Right. So he, he had been around the block a couple of right. times. And it was great to have him as a mentor to kind of show me the ropes. And like I said, I came in maybe not with a proper dose of humility, but I got it very quickly. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to wrap up with my six rapid fire questions, which I'm calling the supersonic six to okay. be as cheesy as possible for a Seattle <laughs> podcast. I love it. 
Bring uh, them I, back. I do miss our NBA team dearly. Yeah. Boy, I loved going to those games. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Let's make it happen. Yeah. All right. Anybody listening, please make it happen. (laughs) So number one, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? I would have to say just the community. There is somewhat of a community in Seattle as there is everywhere. But I would say coming from Durham, I was really surprised because I expected there to be a much more Hmm. tight knit community here. When you're in when you're in a place like Durham, everyone kind of feels like they're they're the underdogs, they're in it together, and you become friends with all these people, and you're going to each other's offices and hanging out and doing happy hours and all these things all the time. And maybe part of it is just that I'm getting old, and maybe there is that scene here, but but I think there's just a little bit a little bit less of that here, and even compared to like Silicon Valley, people talk about the Seattle freeze. Maybe that's somewhat mm. of a thing in our yeah, entrepreneurship community. Mm. Yeah. Well, interesting because there's way more stuff here than Durham, but you feel there's there's less connectivity. There's way more here in terms of the volume of people starting companies and capital. And I mean, Durham is great. Durham has so many brilliant people and very hardworking people and a lot of great companies have come out of there and and been formed there. But even Seattle has two of the largest companies and tech companies in the world that have started here and many, many more of the top 100 and more than our fair share. If you look at the number of people and the amount of capital here, Seattle is probably the highest performing place to invest as a VC in terms of investment returns. In terms of ability to deploy capital, maybe you could argue that there's not enough companies or whatever, but I, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm not dogmatic about trying to get people to become entrepreneurs or about Right, but saying, the community yeah. isn't what you've experienced elsewhere or what you think it could be. Yeah, I think, there's a, there's, I think everybody could count on like one hand the number of institutions or people that are really big about like bringing people together in Seattle. I mean, GeekWire would be one, maybe sure. Techstars, mm-hmm. maybe like John Steinberg and the dinners that he does. Yeah. Yeah. He's been great. Yeah. Other, I mean, other than that, what are the real institutions that are bringing people together? So I think it's just something to think about. Yeah. Okay. If number two, if you could go back to the beginning, would you still found Bonsai in Seattle? hundred percent. 110%. Okay. 110%. All right. Number three, who's a Seattle company or founder that you're following or studying right now and why? I am always watching what the folks at Avalara are doing, probably because I'm still close with a lot mm-hmm. of the people over there. But I think Avalara is an amazing story. I would encourage anybody who's a listener who has not heard about Avalara to go check it out and see what they did and see how they built this business. I mean, they were incredible entrepreneurs who started Avalara and the people that have been there. I mean, it's an incredible success story for Seattle. And I would say probably 90% of Seattle, even entrepreneurs, are not familiar with it. That's amazing. I mean, going strong as a public company to really yeah, dominant seven, in their space. Seven or $8 billion yeah. valuation. Yeah. Number four, what's a truth that you know or believe, but that other people think is either false or crazy? <laughs> I mean, this one might sound a little self-serving, but I think the reason we started this business is that we really believed in the future of experiential marketing versus what everybody I think is focused on, which is pretty much digital marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at the trends, the amount of spending in the US on experiences versus goods has more than doubled over the past 10 years. It's growing at four times the rate of goods spending. And I think that this really being driven by 
millennials and by Gen Z who have grown up having these experiences as part of their life and their personal life. And years ago, there's this concept called the consumerization of enterprise IT, which was essentially that anything that people could get as consumers, they would start to demand those experiences in their enterprise mm-hmm. lives. And I think the exact same thing is true of marketing, right? Consumerization of enterprise marketing. Like people are starting to demand uh, better experiences in the way that they are marketed to um, and the way that they interact with other companies. And I think a huge part of this is going to be experiences. People are used to go to a music festival or a beer festival or a state fair on the weekend. You know, that's what we did this Mm -hmm, weekend. mm -hmm. And then you come back and you're at work and you're still the same person, but you put your director of IT hat on and all of a sudden you have a $2 million budget that you're responsible for. And people are trying to sell to you by getting you to click forms on a website. I think it's not the most effective tool. And if you look at uh, marketing budgets, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that events are the number one uh, category for Mm -hmm. marketing spend in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's 24% of marketing budgets get spent on events and experiential marketing. Yeah, so it's larger than any other category. And I think that trend uh, of consumers putting on their work hat and coming in on Monday morning and demanding those kinds of great experiences, it's going to continue to grow. Number five, what do you know today that you'd wish you'd known when you started your company? My big realization has been just the the unimportance of venture capital for every business, right? Okay. That it's not necessary, but that it can be helpful. Yeah. But that it's a but that it's a tool and not a requirement. Right. And I think if we had realized that from the beginning, we would have saved ourselves probably a year. Right. Eighty um, no's. I think you would have saved yourself. Yeah, <laughs> which translates into a lot of time. A lot of time. And we probably could have just gotten started. So we'd probably be we probably cost ourselves about I don't know ten million bucks a year at this point by not just starting off with that mindset mm-hmm. and just going. So, and a year doesn't seem like a lot, but when you start to talk about compounding, a year becomes meaningful. Number six, what ask do you have for this audience? What can this community do to help you? We are hiring a lot of folks right now, especially in the Seattle area. So I would please encourage your audience to go to our website, check out our careers page. If you see a job that fits with your skill set, please apply for it. This is a great place to work. You will love it here. This will be the best job you ever had. I think if you have a friend that you say, this is perfect fit for them and they're great, send them to us. Where's your jobs page? What's the URL? It's getbonsai.com slash careers. Okay. And that's B-A-N-Z-A-I. B-A-N-Z-A-I.com. Yep. Okay. Awesome. All right. He said it will be the best job you ever had. If anybody applies from listening to this podcast and gets a job, I'm going to reach out to them. Satisfaction guarantee. confirm yeah. that that actually happens. <laughs> so thank you, Joe. It's Thanks, an amazing Adam. story. I love hearing how you think. I've learned a ton from you. I know that anybody listening will learn a lot as well. For people that want to follow you or keep in touch, where should they go? They can follow me on Twitter at JPDavy, J-P-D-A-V-Y, or follow, follow Bonsai. And, you know, I also post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on LinkedIn. And every now and then I put something useful out there. Do you have a desire to drop the mic? I do want to drop the mic. <laughs>